John Wesley was the first one to preach the doctrine of perfection. Let's see what he had to say. This is Jesus, the pattern son, an attempt to give you sonship doctrine that is faithful and fulsome, which is to say a go at it that's biblical and orderly. Welcome back, everybody. This is Jesus, the pattern son. My name is Sharon Sarles, and I'm going to try to give you just an introduction to John Wesley's doctrine of perfection. Because we are, at this point, trying to give you an introduction to the great good news that we are invited into perfection and trying to define what that is. And so, while Wesley is not the only word on perfection, my goodness, he is a foundational word. And he has so much to profitably teach us and has been so misquoted and misfollowed that I just cannot imagine leaving him out. But also there is no way to fit it in to one episode. So anyway, I will tell you what Wesley had to say about perfection. And he strongly argued that it was possible. This was his most controversial doctrine. People Argued with him about it. And so we have quite a bit of his writings and his sermons that are extant today. And I will go over those. And I've decided, well, I'm just going to have to give you a course. And so in the course, I will go into this more deeply. But as I say, he's not the first one to discuss it. Of course, he just simply affirmed what he read in the scripture. And there were other church fathers who mentioned perfection, including Irenaeus. But he said that it is possible for a Christian to live without sin, and that it was not necessary that one should be at the point of death before one, or after death, before one could receive enough grace from God that one could refrain from sinning or, and as he would say, love God so much that you did not want to sin, as was the teaching then, very certainly, and many people still teach today. So to understand Wesley, first off, let's understand that he was promoting a religion of the heart. He said having your heart in mind was toward Jesus was the important thing. Now he clearly was orthodox and did not depart in any major fashion from the theology that was common in his day. He was a member, a clergyman of the Church of England, so he ascribed to the Articles of the Faith which are Calvinist. More the articles of the faith are more Calvinist than the Church of England is. And and he did differ with his good friend George Whitfield uh, later on in life, because Whitfield was more Calvinist. 
a major part of their disagreement was about prevenient grace instead of how to talk about predestination. So they agreed really on the practicality of how people get saved, but simply disagreed on the uh, details of how a theologian would describe that. And I found where he got his prevenient grace, since I have a Calvinist or at least a Reformed education, I wondered where did Wesley get this prevenient grace idea? And I discovered it is in the Articles of Faith. And it's also in the Collect for Easter morning in the prayer book of the Church of England. <laughs> so Wesley was orthodox and he was firmly rooted in the Bible. He all, always argued from the Bible. So what he said was that perfection was possible within the Christian life. And just like justification, it came just exactly in the way justification came. It came because of God's grace and our faith receiving that, laying hold of that. He would use the word apprehending, but of course he, in the 1700s, and so his language was formed by the authorized version of the Bible, which we call the King James Version, which was published in 1611, but many of you speak more modern English. So he was saying that if you loved Jesus so much, you wouldn't want to sin. And so his doctrine of perfection was exactly the same as his doctrine of sanctification. And it was exactly parallel to his doctrine of justification. So if asked if it would come in a certain moment, he would say exactly the same as justification. We experience it coming as a process. We experience it coming as a moment. We might note that final moment, you know, but, and that God works in different ways. So that's a moot question to him. The great good news is, and this is exactly how Wesley said it, there is no necessity of sin laid upon us. Let me say that again for you. There is no necessity of sin laid upon us. In other words, we don't have to go around sinning. This is great good news. Because if you love Jesus that much, you don't want to sin. You know, if you really love a person, you're just completely infatuated, you don't go across them right in front of them. You just don't. You know, if the guy you love the most of all in all the world, doesn't like onions on his hamburger, you serve him a hamburger without onions. <laughs> right? Right? So, unless you're mad at him, you know that this is how it works. And if you are this in love with Jesus, who has, who is all love and who has poured himself out for you, why would you sin? Quite aside from the fact that it doesn't do you any good. And the Father tells us what to do because what he tells us to do is good for us. In love, you don't want to sin. And as well as being intelligent, you don't want to sin. So it's great good news that no necessity of sin is laid upon us, of sinning. And John Wesley would use the scripture in First John. First John 3 and 6 and First John 5 and 18 says that people who are born of God don't sin. A Wesley argued you should take that at face value and not explain it away by saying, well, it doesn't habitually sin. Well, Wesley, my 
still have a problem with arguing that because Greek scholars still argue it means habitually. But you know what? I think it's a moot point. Because the Wesley would say it's all explained in the first chapter of 1 John. Because if God has no darkness in him and we're in God, then we're not going to be walking in darkness. But if we sin, God cleanses, and this is, is a present tense. So I would suggest, rather than arguing about those exceptions, then we should pay attention to the major point that we don't have to sin. And that's what I'm saying here. And that's what Wesley is saying, is that no necessity of sinning is laid upon us. And we should not expect to be sinning. But that is what his interlocutors, people he was talking to, and many church people today, think that we have to sin. And if you go to a church that was founded when Wesley was alive, you'll see that their liturgy still has that. That one of the first things they do, if not first in the service after a hymn, then at least certainly before Eucharist, there is the recitation of a prayer asking for God's forgiveness and in the store of the priest declaring absolution. And I remember Derek Prince mentioned like, he was annoyed with this. Why did he come and have to recite every week that he had sinned when he was not aware of that and didn't that teach people to expect that they should be sinning? Well, Okay, so let's make sure we're on the road and not in between the two ditches. Because there are more modern churches today that forget to help us remember that we do sin and we need to be humble in front of God and ask for forgiveness. And we need, in fact, to examine ourselves before we take communion. And so all of that's good on one hand. But on the other hand, point remains that we should not expect to sin. It's really a cop-out, isn't it? Oh, well, I've been justified. I'm just as if I never sinned and, and go on and live life just however. That's exactly what's going on in our churches today. So Wesley was right in what he has to say. We need to shout from the rooftops. There is no necessity of sinning laid upon us, which means we can go and not sin, which means we need to press in for that promise. If this is normative in Scripture, and it is, 1 John 3 and 6, 1 John 5 and 8, that is born of God, sin of not. Okay, so, but if we sin, okay, so Wesley will admit publicly that people who think they have gotten to the point of never sinning then still may sin. And so it's, it's a good balance. But the point here for, for us is that we don't have to sin. And we can't get to perfection without this, folks. <laughs> so that's what I'm talking about, not trying to start building your skyscraper at floor six or seven. Right? So let's pay attention to the foundations that were laid. 
both in the first century and subsequently. Okay, so I think then next it might be most helpful for me to read you a few words of Wesley. Of course, you can get some of these yourself. Wesley had a sermon, and so did his friend George Whitfield, talking about being halfway Christians. Let's not be halfway Christians. And uh, in fact, John Wesley's sermon number 40 uh, is about perfection. And you can get, so he left 40 exemplary sermons when he died. He left, he picked out 40 of his best sermons and gave it to his, his uh, helpers and the people he was ordaining at the end of his life. And so you can get them on iTunes podcast. 40 sermons of Wesley. But anyway, look around where I give you this podcast, and I'll see if I can give you a link. But now, I want to read you some quotes that I just find so edified out of Wesley's A Plain Account of Christian Perfection. So this is book he kept adding to it over the years so that this doctrine would be very plain, clear to people. Let me see where I should start reading this quotation. There's just so much here, I just have no idea. Anyway, so he is asked publicly, okay, so like, what is this going to look like? And he says, do all the good you possibly can. And say very little. Beware of desiring anything but God. Beware of schism, making a rent in the church. That inward disunion. Okay, don't say my preacher is the best preacher. Don't run down any preacher. Don't absent yourself from morning preaching, meaning every morning. Um, also go to the society and the bands. He says they had small private groups aside from services, which would have been in the Church of England. But uh, the Methodist groups were private weekly meetings for prayer examination and particular exhortation. Because this has been the greatest means of deepening and confirming every blessing that was received by the word preached, and this was more effective than preaching alone. Don't suffer one thought of separating from your brethren. Be aware of impatience of contradiction. Expect contradiction and opposition together with crosses of various kinds. And, oh, this is so wonderful, but anyway, look at unavoidable hindrances as providences and profitable possibly even necessary for you. Okay, now his words. Therefore, receive them from God and not from chance with willingness. Thanks. Receive them from men with humility, meekness, yieldingness, gentleness, and sweetness. Why should not even your outward appearance and manner be soft? Oh my gosh, this is so far above anything that I've ever heard. Beware of tempting others to separate from you. For no offense which can possibly be avoided. He has already quoted the words from Ephesians 4, you know, wrath, anger, malice, evil speaking. And there is so much to be said about that. That's where he started. And he goes on, give no offense where it can possibly be avoided. See that your practice be in all things suitable to your profession, adorning the doctrine of God our Savior. Be particularly careful in speaking of yourself. You may not indeed deny the work of God, but speak of it when you are called thereto in the most inoffensive manner possible. Avoid all magnificent, pompous words. Indeed, 
You need give it no general name, neither perfection, sanctification, second blessing, nor having a pain. So he's specifically telling his people not to call these things. Rather, speak of the particulars which God has wrought for you. You may say, at such a time, I felt a change which I was not able to express. And since that time, I have not felt pride or self-will or anger or unbelief or anything but a fullness of love to God and to all mankind and answer any other plain question that is asked with modesty and simplicity. Wow, okay, so that's the heart of the matter. He expects his people who have gotten to the maturity, he's calling perfection to say, at such a time I felt a change which I was not able to express, and since that time I have not felt pride or self-will or anger or unbelief or anything but a fullness of love to God and to all mankind. Be exemplary in all things, particularly in all outward things, is in dress, avoiding needless expense, and so forth. And then he goes on to talk about the scriptures. But in the middle, he says, And if any of you should at any time fall from what you now are, if you should again feel pride or unbelief, or any temper from which you are now delivered, do not deny, do not hide, do not disguise it at all. At the peril of your soul, at all events, go to one in whom you can confide and speak just what you feel. God will enable him to speak a word in season which shall be health to your soul, and surely he will again lift up your head and cause the bones that have been broken to rejoice. Even in the one sermon on perfection, he says similarly that it is very important to confess and be real with people. Confess when you need to confess your sins, but also be real about your struggles with people and not to be haughty and pretentious as if you have attained what you haven't, if you have never slipped from that which you haven't attained. And so I think this is so amazingly mature and such great good news. No necessity of sin is laid upon us and that Jesus is the object of our love and our, you know, this is what we should be looking at is Jesus, not looking at fulfilling all the law, but also not just discarding it in our own ignorant arrogance. But that's exactly the measure to which we have, you know, it's a, it's a measuring stick, it's a stick, you know, of how far the oil is up. But we don't make it further up by adhering to the law itself, but by loving Jesus. And Jesus, who is the pattern son, lives through us, just as we are justified in Christ, because we're in Christ, because of Christ's finished work on the cross. Well, people say on the cross, but also in resurrection. We are also sanctified. By being in Christ and loving Jesus, and it is Holy Spirit's work to sanctify us. And so, yes, we should desire holiness, and yes, we should desire it with hope and faith, because it is able to be laid upon us, <laughs> although it is by God's grace and even 
possibly Jesus' faith, if he ever liveth to make intercession for us. And if, if that's the correct understanding of prevenient grace, that God sends us the ability to repent and to have faith. But still, we have to cooperate with God and receive it. And it does no good to be distracted by theological categories. The point here is to get underway. It is the heart that is the engine. And the mind does some steering, but it's the spirit that gives the fuel. So let's get underway. Let us love God. Let us open our hearts and our minds to the possibility that we can move forward in grace, in sanctification, which means being holy. And we can attain to something the way of maturity, of looking which we would call perfection, looking like Jesus. We look like Jesus because we're in Christ and we're motivated by Christ in the, in the Holy Spirit, right? So somebody once said that if you get in the armor of God, or it's then switching the metaphor from Roman armor to late medieval or early Renaissance armor, put down the visor. And Satan thinks it's Jesus in that suit of armor because it's Jesus' suit of armor. I love that. And if you stay in that armor long enough, you start being of the shape of the armor itself. How's that for a picture? Okay, so no necessity of sin is laid upon us, although we have to be real and say we, we did sin and that we still are liable to sin. We could sin, but we don't want to sin. We don't have to sin. And we can get to the point where we, by observation, can tell that we have not transgressed any of the known will of God. This is a hugely high bar. We can, it is possible to fix our heart so firmly on Jesus, you know, like a compass, that we are not aware of having sin in our heart. If that's possible, that's great good news. Let's go there. And if we don't quite get there, we still are much better off knowing that we could and we're making progress rather than sitting back like the cop out saying, oh, well, this is how it is. We're a sinner saved by grace. And so we've got to keep sinning. We sin every day. It's just a cop out. And then you're going and doing, you know, rituals or social network around Jesus, which is fine and good, and preaching justification only, which is good as far as it goes, but salvation, whole salvation, whole sozo, is more than justification alone. It has to include sanctification, right? Sozo, what we talk about this is the Greek word that's translated as salvation. It's much bigger than just having your sins taken away, much bigger than positionally only being in Christ. But we have the great good news that we can look like Jesus. And being like Jesus is what perfection is. And we are not going to try to throw out scripture as to what that's going to be like. 
And we are going to listen to those wise Christians around us because we need that kind of um, triangulating on the truth, as you will, as we all listen to spirit and all read the Bible. Yes. Hallelujah. I think that's a good place to end. Point is, perfection is possible. So let's conform to the known will of God. Let's follow the leading of the Spirit. Let's be like Jesus. Amen? Hallelujah. Good news. Yes? And let's stick carefully to the path and not fall into either ditch. By either starting debates over this, being distracted by theological hair splitting, and let's not fall into despondency as if we can't do this because of that. And let's don't either get so enthusiastic and so arrogant that we cut ourselves off from wisdom of Scripture and brothers and think that we have the mind of the Spirit all by ourselves. Okay? So, all good news. No necessity of sinning is laid upon us. Perfection. And the method is follow that pattern said. See you next time. Please be invited to write us at sister at jesuspatternson.org. That's sister at jesuspatternson.org. Or you may write us by land mail at P.O. Box 971, Cedar Park, Texas, 78630. That's P.O. Box 971, Cedar Park, Texas, 78630. And may the Lord bless you.